This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, speak now words of comfort and mercy to your people. Help us to repent of our sin, to confess our sin, to hate our sin, that we might turn towards you and embrace your forgiving and transforming mercy. O oh, Father, this we pray through the strong name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. When the Apostle Paul wanted to explain God's mercy in Christ to sinners, how God forgives sinners, how he does not charge their sin against them, he does not hold their sin against them, how he restores sinners to a right relationship with himself. When the Apostle Paul wanted to unfold all these glories of grace, these glories of the gospel in Romans chapter 4, he quotes from Psalm 32, the opening verses of Psalm 32, because the Apostle Paul knew that on Psalm 32, David had provided for us, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, a a beautiful encapsulation of what God's mercy is all about, what God's mercy to sinners means. After the Apostles, the greatest theologian of the early church, from the time of the Apostles, I think you could say, to the Reformation, The greatest theologian the church produced was Augustine. Augustine was incredibly prolific as a writer and a preacher, and he left his stamp on virtually every facet of the church's life. When Augustine wanted comfort on his deathbed, where did he look? Where did he go? When Augustine needed comfort, he turned to Psalm 32. This was his favorite psalm, and as he lay dying, he had it posted next to his bed so he could continually remind himself of these glorious truths. Paul turned to Psalm 32 to explain the gospel of God's mercy to sinners, justifying sinners, declaring them righteous in Christ. Augustine, in his time of great need on his deathbed, turned to Psalm 32 for comfort and encouragement. And today we turn to Psalm 32 for those same reasons. This psalm plums the depths of man's sin and the even greater depths of God's mercy. It is a psalm that celebrates God's forgiveness, that rejoices in God's mercy, how God does not count our sins against us. No, God shows mercy to sinners who cry out to him. In this psalm, David uses three words to describe our sin. You've got a threefold description of our sin. In verses 1 and 2, he calls it sin and transgression. In verse 2, he calls it iniquity. And then he also uses a three-fold description of how our sin has been dealt with. In verse 1, he says it's forgiven. Again, in verse 1, he says it's covered. And then he says it's not counted against us in verse 2. And so this psalm shows us how we can move from sinners who are burdened with guilt and weighed down by shame, how we can move from that state into the joy of forgiveness. And it really all happens when we confess our sin and repent of it. When we confess our sin and turn from it, we enter into the joy described at the end of this psalm. When we embrace the Lord's mercy, the gateway to joy is confession and repentance. Because those who confess will always find a merciful God. And so that's what we're going to look at today. This psalm opens with a word of blessing. Now it's interesting to this 
point in the book of Psalms, the only other psalm to open with the word blessed is Psalm 1. Psalm 1 pronounces a blessing on the obedient man, the man who has delighted in the law of God. Psalm 32, by contrast, pronounces a blessing on the forgiven man. It pronounces a blessing on the disobedient man who has failed to delight in the law of God, but who now finds God's forgiveness. The man who has broken God's law is now blessed and restored. In fact, that's really what you can uh, think of that word blessing as, as indicating here. Blessed is he whose transgressions are forgiven, David says. That word blessing, to be blessed, means to be made happy. It means to be made whole. Uh, it, it means that you have been given a great joy. And, and here, this great blessing is having your sins forgiven. That is the fount of every other blessing God can give to us. If you do not have your sins forgiven, it does not matter what else you have. Everything hinges on forgiveness, on having your sins covered. And it's interesting that David uses that language of covering. Uh, and there's a lot in the Bible about covering. There's a lot in the sacrificial system about covering. I won't go into all the details of that here today. But really, this is a theme that goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. Think about the first sin, the original sin, when Adam and his bride sin in the garden. Here God has surrounded them with gifts of love, with signs of his goodness. There's only one tree that's off limits and a whole garden full of trees that are good for food. They've got access to the tree of life, but no, they have to have fruit from that one forbidden tree. And so they sin. They rebel against God. What happened when they sinned? Well, we're told in Genesis 3, they experienced shame. They suddenly realized they were naked. Their physical nakedness was suddenly shameful, whereas it had not been before. Now it's suddenly shameful because their souls have been stripped bare. Their souls are now naked. And so what do they do? They seek to cover themselves. They make their own coverings. They try to cover their nakedness, their shame, their guilt with fig leaves. The reality is because we're all sinners and because we all experience shame and guilt, we all know we need a covering. Everyone knows they need a covering. And some try to make a covering for themselves, but we have to understand no covering you can make will really cover your sins. No covering you can make will really cover your guilt and shame. No covering you can make will really shield you from God's just wrath against your sin. It's interesting that in Islam's version of the Adam and Eve story, Allah tells them to cover themselves with good works because that's just the philosophy of every human religion. It's a matter of self-covering based on performance. That's really what we fall into. It's not really any different from what Adam and Eve tried to do unsuccessfully in the biblical account in Genesis 3. There's no blessing for those who try to cover their own sin because you cannot cover your own sin. And so what happens in Genesis chapter 3? Well, God comes to them. And, of course, there's a lot of things that happen. But for our purposes, this is what we want to take note of. God slaughters an animal. Blood is shed because without the shedding of blood, there can be no cleansing from sin. There can be no washing away 
of sin. God slaughters an animal and then he covers Adam and Eve with skins of his own making. He covers them with a sacrifice, a substitutionary sacrifice. It's really interesting. In this psalm, uh, David tries to cover his sin by keeping it secret. That's another strategy we use. Sometimes we try to cover ourselves with good works. Other times we try to cover it up by keeping it a secret. Verse 3 says, the blessed man does not practice deceit. What was David doing after he sinned? He was trying to cover up his sin. And of course, this involved all kinds of deceit. This may have to do with trying to deceive others. It may have to do with a process of self-deception. That's probably included too, which we try to convince ourselves that we're okay, even though we know deep down we're really not. That's what David was doing. He was seeking to deceive others and himself about his sin. He was dishonest about his sin. He kept silent about his sin. He tried to cover it with silence. He tried to cover it by refusing to confess it and acknowledge it. Tradition tells us that Psalm 32 is written after Psalm 51. Psalm 51 is written in the aftermath of the, uh, of the incident with Bathsheba, where he sleeps with Bathsheba and then has Uriah, uh, her husband, murdered. And uh, we know that for some period of time, David did seek to keep that sin secret. And it wasn't until after the child had been born that Nathan comes to David. So maybe, you know, nine months to a year later that Nathan, the prophet, comes to David and exposes his sin. For all that time, maybe upwards of a year, David was trying to hide that sin, cover that sin through his silence. And what happened during that time? Listen to how David describes this as he tried to cover his sin with silence. The result... You see here, physical and emotional torment. Verse 3, he says, my bones wasted away. He groaned in agony and misery day and night. Verse 4, God's hand was heavy upon him. His strength was sapped. His energy, his drive, his ambition just left him. When David's mouth was silent, his conscience was screaming at him on the inside. And it tore him up physically and emotionally. I do wonder sometimes how many of our problems in life stem from unconfessed sin. I wouldn't say all of them do. I don't think we should always assume this is what's behind uh, mental struggles or emotional struggles or physical struggles. But the reality is it's certainly behind some of them. David tells us that here. See, we all sin. We're all going to sin. We're all sinners. The question is, what do you do next? We all sin. It's a matter of what do you do with your sin? What do you do about your sin? The famous psychiatrist Carl Menninger once said that if he could convince patients in psychiatric hospitals that their sins were forgiven, 75% of them could walk out the next day. This man worked with psychiatric patients his whole life and he said if I could convince them that their sins are forgiven 75% of them could go home the next day because their problem would be solved whatever symptoms are manifesting whatever problems are manifesting themselves it's really all about unresolved sin I think Menninger's right because I think it echoes what David says in Psalm 32 a lot of mental and emotional problems stem from unresolved feelings of guilt from feeling unforgiven 
because that load of guilt can be crushing. It can become unbearable. And it will have emotional and even physical effects. Now think about what we do in worship every Sunday. Every Lord's Day, we get down on our knees, a posture of humility. We get down on our knees and we confess our sin. We confess that we are sinners. And then we rise up to hear a declaration of God's forgiveness. We hear those words, your sin, your sins are fully and freely forgiven. We hear that good news. You need to understand that that moment of, of, of absolution, when that declaration of forgiveness is pronounced, that is a moment of healing. In the service. It's therapeutic, you might say. It's good for your body and your soul to confess your sin and then hear those words. Confession is good for the soul, it's good for the body. That's what we learn here. Of course, you need to do more than just confess your sins with God's people on the Lord's Day. That's a general confession. You also need to be confessing your particular sins, particularly throughout the week. You need to confess specific sins to God. You need to get them out in the open. You need to bring them out into the light where they can be forgiven, where you can acknowledge them before the Lord and experience his forgiveness and also bring them out into the light where they can be put to death. See, the way to have your sins covered is to uncover them before God. The way to have your sins covered by God is to uncover them before God. It's to confess your sin, to expose yourself. If you want God to cover you, you have to confess your own nakedness, your own shame before him. When we confess our sins, God promises to not count them against us. That's the glorious thing. One of the things that makes people not want to confess is they're afraid. What if I confess this? What's going to happen? Well, when you confess your sins to God, you can know he is not going to count those sins against you. He's not going to press charges. When you confess what you've done, the charges are dropped and you're set free. Verse 5 is really the turning point. Uh, in the story this psalm tells. And here you see this. David had been concealing his sin and it was eating away at him. Now he says, I acknowledged my sin to you and my iniquity I have not hidden. And I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. See, that, that really describes the whole process, everything that needs to happen. David was like a dead man, at least on the inside. He, he was dying. He, he was groaning within. His bones were being eaten away, and he confesses his sin. And, and what is it like? It's like a resurrection. It's like a resurrection. He is a new man. He's made new through confessing his sin and receiving God's forgiveness. And that is a dynamic, what, what David describes here in verse 5. This is a dynamic in the Christian life we repeat again and again and again. We sin again and again and again. And so we feel the sting of guilt and shame. And so then what do we do? We need to confess that sin so we can experience the freedom and joy of God's forgiveness. It's like unconfessed sin had driven a wedge between David and his Lord. 
David was cut off from fellowship and communion with God because of this unconfessed sin. But now that he confesses his sin, that fellowship and that friendship with God is fully restored. He's at peace with the Lord. Verse 6 goes on. He goes on to say, for this reason, everyone who is godly shall pray to you. Praying in this context obviously means a prayer of confession, confessing your sin to God. It's praying in such a way that you confess your sin before God and you ask God for forgiveness. And he says, this is what the godly do. Note who the godly are here. The godly are sinners. They're simultaneously sinful and godly at the same time. The godly man here is not the sinless man. He's the man who knows what to do with his sin. He's the man who knows what to do when he sins. The godly man is the man who confesses. He's the man who humbles himself to confess his sin. He lowers himself by confessing so that God can exalt him in forgiving him. And actually, if you skip down to verses 10 and 11, you see the same kind of thing. He says, many sorrows shall be to the wicked, but the upright shall shout for joy. In this psalm, the difference between the godly who rejoice and the wicked who are miserable is not that the godly do not sin while the wicked do sin. The godly and the wicked here both sin. So what's the difference? The difference is that the godly confess their sin to the Lord and the wicked do not. That's the mark of a godly man. He confesses his sin. The mark of the wicked, the one who is cut off from the Lord altogether, the the apostate, is that he will not confess his sin. So there are two kinds of sinners in the world. Godly sinners who confess and repent and wicked sinners who do not. David then describes the, the sense of urgency we ought to have about confessing sin. David learned this the hard way, again, by concealing his sin for so long and what that did to him. Now he gives you a real sense of urgency. Confess your sin now. Don't delay. Don't wait. He says the godly seek God while he may be found. There's going to come a day where it's too late. So seek God now while he may be found. David says, surely in a flood of great waters, they shall not come near him. See, if you don't confess your sin now, you might miss your opportunity. You might be overwhelmed by a flood of judgment, just like the flood in Noah's day caught people off guard. They weren't expecting the world to be flooded. They mocked Noah for building the ark and talking about rain and a coming flood. And so it is the case so often with sinners. They never see God's judgment coming, and then it's upon them. Do not miss your opportunity. Repent while you can, while it is still day. By contrast to to those who conceal their sin, who refuse to confess, look at what happens when we confess our sin. Verse 7, David says to the Lord, You are my hiding place. You shall preserve me from trouble. You shall surround me with songs of deliverance. A hiding place is a place of safety where the floodwaters cannot reach. For Noah, the hiding place was the ark. For us, that hiding place is Christ. He is our hiding place. The floodwaters cannot reach us when we have run to Christ for safety. When we run to Christ for safety and refuge, he is a haven to us. He is a strong fortress for us. He is a citadel for us. He protects us and guards us. David says that God sings songs of deliverance over us. He surrounds us. It's like these songs are in surround sound. God is singing songs of deliverance over his people. God is the one singing these songs of deliverance here, singing songs over us to comfort us. Think of the words of the prophet Zephaniah 
In chapter 3, verse 17 of his prophecy, the Lord is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will call, he, he will calm you with his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. And so it is here. David has been shaken to the core of who he is when he realizes the depth and the magnitude of his sin. Zephaniah says, God is a God who calms his people with his love. He steadies you. He calms you. He quiets your your restless soul. And how does he do that? He sings love songs over you. Loud songs of rejoicing. God rejoices in your midst. God rejoices over you with gladness. God sings songs of... You know, we always think of, our, of, of how we sing songs to God. And of course, that's true. We do sing songs to God. But God also sings songs to us. Songs of joy. Songs of deliverance. Songs that, that bring comfort. That, that, that soothe us. That bring us into his own joy. The Lord sings to his people. In fact, it's entirely possible that the rest of this psalm then is that song of deliverance that God sings over his people and that God sings to his people when they confess their sins. God sings absolution to us. He sings that good news of forgiveness to us. What is this, the rest of this psalm going to say? This is God speaking directly to us, singing over us. He says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will guide you. What a comfort that is. Because after we've sinned and our conscience is smarting from that, we've got the, the, the sting of guilt in our conscience, what do we want? We know we need to be instructed. We need to be taught in the right way. We need God to guide us. And God says, that's what I'm going to do. God gives grace to those who humble themselves in repentance. He instructs those who cry out to him in repentance. When we say, God, instruct me, God says, okay, I will. God rebukes any stubbornness on our part. So we have to be teachable here. We have to be correctable. That too is an aspect of our humility. We humble ourselves to confess our sin. In humbling ourselves to confess our sin, we also open ourselves up to hearing instruction from God. It's really interesting. In the book of Proverbs, submitting to correction is a mark of true wisdom. And so it is here. The truly wise, in the book of Proverbs, the truly wise man is correctable. He will hear instruction. He'll receive instruction. He'll receive correction. The fool will not do that. One of the marks of the fool is he rejects God's instruction. He rejects any correction. He's wise in his own eyes. He doesn't need somebody to correct him. He already knows what he needs to know. So the psalm goes on. Don't be like the horse or the mule which have no understanding. You know, you can't reason with those animals. They're stubborn, and so they can be difficult to deal with, and so they have to be harnessed with bit and bridle. This is really an echo of, of Proverbs 26.3. A whip for a horse, a bridle for a donkey, and a whip for a fool's back. That's really what David is saying here. God, in his grace and his mercy, will discipline you. He will chasten you in order to bring you back to himself. That's good news. Even though that discipline can be painful, When it happens, painful for a season, it bears the peaceable fruit of righteousness in our lives, as we find in Hebrews chapter 12, which really is echoing that same theme uh, from the book of Proverbs. And it's what you find here. God corrects us for our good. 
And then the psalm ends with this reminder. The wicked who refuse to confess bring many sorrows on themselves. They will find no relief from their guilt and their shame. But he who trusts in the Lord, see, in order to confess your sin, you've got to trust in the Lord. You have to bank on God's mercy because that's what you're pinning your hopes to. That when I confess, God will forgive. He who trusts in the Lord is surrounded by mercy. If you trust in the Lord, you will see his mercy in everything and everywhere in your life. His mercy lifting you out of misery. His mercy rolling away your guilt and shame. His mercy empowering you to rise above your sin, to live in a new kind of way, an obedient way, receiving the Lord's instruction and correction. See, that mercy that forgives also transforms. That mercy that puts us to death with that, with that sense of I've sinned, I deserve death, I know that, 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 that I'm under judgment. That same mercy raises us up and makes us new. And so in verse 11, be glad in the Lord, rejoice you righteous, and shout for joy all you upright in heart. And so again, what do we see here? These words of comfort, these words of joy, the gateway to joy opens up to those who confess their sin. It's as if the gates of heaven itself have been thrown open to all those who acknowledge their sin before the Lord. And so if I had to summarize this psalm, I would put it this way. If I had to boil down the message of this psalm to just one line, this is, this is how I would put it. What is the message of Psalm 32? Repent and believe the good news of the kingdom. What's the message of Psalm 32? Repent and believe the gospel. Repentance is turning away from sin and towards God. It's confessing our sin. It's being disgusted with our sin and hating it. It's turning away from it. All so that we can embrace God's mercy by faith. It's interesting all throughout scripture how repentance and faith are inseparable. You see them here. That language of repentance is not necessarily used. But you see the process here as David turns away from his sin. But it's not just a turning from sin. It's a turning towards God's mercy. That turning from is repentance. That turning towards is faith. You can't turn away without turning towards. And so repentance and faith always go together. They're inseparable. They're constantly paired together in scripture. This turning from and turning to. But this is what you need to understand. You will never repent of your sin and experience this kind of relief and joy unless two things happen. One, you have to come to see your sin for what it is and despise it. That's one thing. And the other thing is you have to be convinced of God's mercy. And really those two things go together as well. Seeing your sin for what it is, the sinfulness of your sin, how disgusting your sin really is. And then seeing the beauty of God's mercy. If you're still in love with your sin, you're not going to let it go. You can't turn from it so long as you're in love with it. You have to love God more. You have to see God rather than your sin as beautiful, as attractive. But the only thing that can make you hate your sin and love God is to see God's mercy to you in Christ Jesus. No one repents of their sin unless they trust God to be merciful to them. No one's going to take the leap of confession unless they see that safety net of mercy that's going to catch them. No one uncovers their sin in confession unless they see what Christ has done to cover it on the cross. No one's going to strip down naked before God unless they're confident God's going to reclothe them 
with the glory of Christ, with the robe of Christ himself. Micah chapter 7, the, the, the prophet describes God this way. There is no God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression. He will again have compassion over us. He will tread our sins underfoot. And he will cast all our sins into the depth of the sea. I love those pictures. God trampling down our sin under his feet. Crushing our sins to death under his feet. God throwing our sins into the depth of the sea. Where they sink to the bottom. Never to be seen again. That's what God forgave God's forgiveness means. And there's no other God like this. There's no other God that promises to do this. No God like you pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression. Not counting our sins against us. Rather covering those sins. In the book of Common Prayer uh, liturgy, there's, there's a line that I love that's spoken to God in the Eucharistic liturgy in the book of Common Prayer. The line is this. For it is always your property to have mercy. It is always God's property to have mercy. Those who confess their sin can know they will always find a merciful God because it's just who God is. It's his nature. It's his property. You cannot out the mercy of God. The mercy of God can cover sins of any size and any number. No matter the quantity or quality of your sin, God can cover it. If your sin keeps you from turning to God, you do not know who God is. You do not grasp the magnitude of his mercy, the breadth and the depth of his mercy. And so what is Psalm 32 calling us to do? Renounce your self-made sin coverings. I mean, homemade things are good a lot of times, but homemade sin coverings are not. Renounce your self-made sin coverings and embrace the sacrificial sin covering God has provided in Jesus. John Stott once said, sin is man putting himself in God's place. That's what sin is. Sin is when man substitutes himself for God. When you sin, you're saying, I'm God. I am my own God. I know best. Every time we sin, we're putting ourselves in the place where only God deserves to be. That's sin, John Stott says, but then he goes on. If sin is man substituting himself for God, salvation is God substituting himself for man. See, what makes Psalm 32 work? Maybe David could not have fully understood this, but Paul spells it out for us in Romans chapter 4. On the cross, God put himself in your place. He took the punishment your sin deserves. He experienced the agony of an eternal hell compressed into three hours. A torment so great, all Jesus could do is cry out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He endured all that for you. He suffered all that for you. He went to the cross for you. You deserve that cross. You deserve to be forsaken. You deserve to be cut off from God and cast into hell for all eternity. That's what you deserve. You deserve to hang on that cross forever and ever and ever. But no, Jesus hung on that cross for you. He suffered for you. On the cross, he bore all our shame. He carried all our guilt. Adam and Eve were naked and ashamed in the garden. 
On the cross, Jesus was stripped naked so he could bear our shame. But he was stripped naked so we might be clothed in his glory. He was condemned so we might be acquitted. He died so that we might live. Our sins were counted against him so they may not be counted against us. He was uncovered so we might be covered. This is the beauty of the gospel. This is what Psalm 32 is pointing us to. Our sins were counted against Christ so they would not be counted against us. See, we are united to him by faith. He stood there as our representative in our place. We're in him when he suffers all of this. And so everything he suffers, he suffers for us and as us. So now we can go free. That's the beauty of it. And this means that as you trust in Christ, as you trust in the sure mercies of this God, you can be fully assured of your salvation. David wrote Psalm 32 so sinners could know. So sinners could have assurance. So you wouldn't have to wonder, you wouldn't have to doubt. David wrote Psalm 32 so sinners could know beyond the shadow of a doubt with absolute certainty that yes, I am forgiven. I am forgiven. Psalm 32 is written so that you may know, you might really know your sins are fully and freely forgiven. There are a lot of Christians who struggle with assurance. Am I saved? Am I really a Christian? Are my sins really forgiven? Well, let me put it to you the way I heard another preacher put it many years ago. He asked this question. How many sons does God have to kill in order for you to be convinced that he loves you? How many sons does God have to kill in order to convince you that he has forgiven you? How many sons does God have to kill? Shouldn't one be enough? Giving up his one and only son, his dearly beloved son, the Lord Jesus, shouldn't that be enough? Isn't one crucifixion enough? Isn't the crucifixion of God's beloved son enough to prove to you that he loves you? To assure you that you really are forgiven? If God has given his own son to die for you, what is he ever going to withhold from you that you could possibly need? If God has given you the greatest gift of all, Himself, If God has given you his own son to die for you on the cross, how is he going to withhold anything from you necessary for your good or your salvation? That's really Paul's logic at the end of Romans 8. If God has given us his son, surely he will give us everything we need. You need to know this. You need to understand this. You are children of God, children of the heavenly father. And the father wants you to know that he loves you. He wants you to walk out of here today knowing he rejoices in you and he delights in you that you are his beloved child. You you think about this, you dads. You know, you dads, I know that you dads want your kids to know that you love them. And if one of your kids was doubting, does my dad love me? You would do whatever it took to assure your child, I do love you. You'll go to great lengths to demonstrate to your kids that you love them. You'll get up and go to work every single day, whether you feel like it or not, because you love your kids and you're going to provide for them. And even when the ball game is on and you're you're really into it, enjoying it, but a kid's disobedient, 
You get up from the game and you go discipline that child because you know discipline is an act of love. And I love my kid more than I love this game. And I need to show my kid that, that he's the priority. You will do everything you can as a fallible and limited creature. You will do everything you can to prove your love to your kids. You want your kids to know that you love them. Well, so it is with the Heavenly Father. He wants us as his children to know, to really know that he loves us. He wants us to rejoice in that love, to feel surrounded and protected by that love. He wants us to know that in him we have a refuge and a strength and a fortress. He wants us to rejoice in his forgiveness. To rejoice in this truth that we're reconciled to him. Now you need to understand this mercy of God I'm talking about here. This mercy is often scandalous. It does often offend us. We want God to show mercy to us. When we see our sin and our need, sometimes we don't want God showing mercy to others. And sometimes God shows mercy to people in a way that offends us. Think about the parable of the prodigal son. What happens in that well-known story in Luke 15? The parable of the prodigal son. The rebellious son asks his dad for an early inheritance. In other words, he comes to his dad and he says, Dad, drop dead. I know when you die, I'm going to get an inheritance. Let me have it now. You're as good as dead to me. And so the father obliges and gives the son his inheritance. And what does the son do? He goes off to a far country. He squanders all that money that his father worked so hard to attain. He squanders it all in a life of partying. He parties it all away. And then things finally get so bad, he's starving. He's been reduced to eating pig slop. Of course, pigs are unclean animals, so this is as bad as it gets. He comes to his senses and he decides to go home and he's thinking to himself, when I confess my sin to my father, maybe he will at least let me be a servant in his house. But what happens? As he gets close to home, his father sees him. It's like his father's been looking for him and his father sees him afar off. And he gathers up his robes and he runs out to meet his son and he has compassion on his son and he throws his arms around his son and he hugs him. And he says, go get the fatted calf, get the robe, and get the ring. And he throws a big party for his son. He throws this huge party, fatted calf and all, for his son. The son who is lost has now been found. Think about what's happening there. This prodigal son wasted everything on parties. And then he comes home, and his dad decides what he needs is one more party. That's a different kind of party. But the father is full of joy over his repentant son. His son has finally confessed and repented. And so he wants his son to share in his own joy. And so he throws this great party. That's the joy of the forgiven described in Psalm 32. The way that story goes with the father rejoicing over the repentant son. That's the kind of joy described in Psalm 32. That's the kind of story. The story of the prodigal son. That's the kind of story that grows out of Psalm 32. A story of mercy and forgiveness. But there's one other element to that story. There's the older brother, remember him? Who never left home. And who was not so excited to see his brother come back and have his shame covered with the robe and the ring and have the fatted calf slaughtered to have this great party for his younger brother. 
he was scandalized by God's mercy. And you need to realize that at some point you may be scandalized by God's mercy as well. You may be offended by the forgiveness God offers to others. Did you know that God forgives racists? And racism seems to be the biggest sin anybody can commit today. But those who confess their racism and seek to repent of it are forgiven. God forgives abortion. Those who perform abortions, those who procure them, God forgives homosexuality. There are countless people who are engaged in a homosexual lifestyle, who confess their sin and found it forgiven. There will be people who had practiced homosexuality at some point during their life in heaven, experiencing the eternal joy of the Father's salvation. People have engaged in all kinds of abuse, People who have engaged in adultery. All kinds of sin can be forgiven. Any sin can be forgiven by God's mercy if confessed to him. That's the message of Psalm 32. Martin Luther, of course, understood this well. Uh, One of Luther's best friends was Philip Melanchthon. And Melanchthon was certainly a great theologian in his own right, but he had a very different temperament than Luther. Luther had this bold and courageous temperament. Uh, Melanchthon was timid. Uh, Some might even call him spineless. He was very, very introspective and had a very sensitive conscience, and he really struggled with assurance, and he would often seek Luther's counsel. So while Luther was off in the castle of uh, Wartburg translating the scriptures, Melanchthon had one of these bouts of of doubt and anxiety, one of his bouts with timidity. And so he wrote to Luther and he said, I woke this morning wondering if I trust Christ enough. Am I really a Christian? Do I trust Christ enough? Uh, Luther had gotten these kind of letters from Melanchthon regularly. Uh, He knew that Melanchthon had this tendency to navel-gaze, to wonder about the state of his own soul, the state of his faith, whether it would be enough to save him. And so finally, to try to shake Melanchthon out of this, Luther wrote back to him and said, Melanchthon, go sin bravely. Then go to the cross and bravely confess it. The whole gospel is outside us. And while I might word that a little bit differently than Luther, uh, and what Luther said certainly could be abused, Luther is exactly right. His point is sound. Go sin bravely. Go sin boldly. You're going to be a sinner. Sin boldly and then go to the cross and boldly confess it, knowing that Jesus died to forgive you. The ground of your forgiveness is outside of you. It's in Christ who suffered and died for you on the cross. That is the ground of your forgiveness. Don't look inside yourself trying to find an answer to that shame and that guilt. That's not going to help you. Look outside yourself to Jesus who died for you. Trust in the God who forgives all who cry out to him. Throw away your fig leaves and put on the royal robe of Christ himself. One last way of thinking about this. God gave to ancient Israel uh, a calendar that initially had just one fast day compared to about 80 feast days. 
one fast day. And that fast day was the day of atonement, a day when they were to afflict their souls. And in their bodies they were to fast. And it's described in Leviticus 16, and I I won't go into all the details there, I'll just point out a a couple of highlights to you uh, about the Day of Atonement, because I think this is one of the things David very much has in mind when he's writing Psalm 32. On that day, a goat would be selected as the scapegoat. And the high priest would go lay hands on that scapegoat and confess the sins of the nation of Israel. It's like the nation is being incorporated into that scapegoat, united to that scapegoat. The scapegoat now is going to bear all their sins. And this goat then would be driven off into the wilderness, into exile to take their sins away. Just as that goat has been forgotten and lost, so any record of your sins has been forgotten and lost. It's been taken away. And then there would be another goat, and the high priest again would lay his hands over that goat and again confess the sins of the people over this goat. And it's again like Israel's being incorporated into that goat. So now everything that happens to the goat happens on Israel's behalf. And and, and the high priest lays his hands on, uniting himself to that animal, confessing sins over that goat. And then that goat is slaughtered for the sins of the people. The blood is shed. And then that goat is laid on the altar and becomes a sacrifice for the cleansing of the people. You need to know, when you confess your sins, it's like you're laying your hands on Jesus. You're laying your hands on Jesus so he can be the one who takes your sin away. He becomes your scapegoat. He becomes your sacrifice. Imagine it this way. It's another way of thinking about the same thing. Imagine the old covenant temple. And of course, in the Holy of Holies, behind the veil, there is the Shekinah glory of God enthroned above the Ark of the Covenant. The Lord himself dwelling in the midst of his people. But there, there's bar- these barriers between the Lord in his glory and the people. And imagine the Shekinah glory coming out from behind the veil where the Shekinah glory had been enthroned above the Ark of the Covenant. Imagine the Shekinah glory coming down from his throne, out from behind the veil, And then putting on human flesh. And then offering for all of us to lay hands on him. The Shekinah glory now enveloped in human flesh. To lay hands on this glory and confess our sins. And then the Lord, this Shekinah glory, goes and lays himself down on the altar to be sacrificed in your place. That's what Psalm 32 is all about. The Lord making a covering for your sin. God took man's cross so man could inherit God's throne. That's your hope. Your hope's not found in yourself. Time will not take your sins away. Tears will not take your sins away. Only the blood of Christ, the Shekinah glory, made flesh and crucified for us. Only that can take our sins away. Repent. And believe this good news. Confess your sins and experience this joy. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.